come up here this morning to announce my retirement. <laughs> Take my jersey off. Just been a cycle of pain and rehab, pain and rehab, and yeah. I don't have as much money as Andrew Luck, so. Well, in all seriousness, all good things must come to an end, uh, including Andrew Luck's football career. But all good things must come to an end, including our luxurious summer in Rome. And we've covered a lot of ground, and we've seen many memorable sights. So like you do when your vacation comes to an end, let's scroll through and remember some of the places that we've been. So, for example, in Romans chapter 1, we saw Paul's famous declaration that he is not ashamed of the gospel, because in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. And then from chapter 1 all the way into part of chapter 3, Paul makes it clear that all people need this good news. And that's because all people have sinned, all have fallen short of God's glory, and all deserve God's wrath. And then at the end of chapter 3, Paul finally elaborates on what exactly this good news is. This good news is the great exchange of Jesus' perfect righteousness credited to our accounts because our sin was counted to him on the cross. In chapter 4, Paul made it clear that all who believe in Jesus, Jew or Gentile, are reconciled to God by faith alone, not by works. In chapter 5, he said that at the right time, Christ died for the weak and ungodly. That's me and you. In order that God might reconcile his enemies to himself. And because of that, we are no longer condemned with Adam and sin. But we are united to Christ by God's grace. In chapter 6, he tells us that we have died to sin. We've been raised to new life. That sin no longer reigns over us the way it once did. In chapter 7, Paul told us that we are dead to the law, no longer foolishly trying to earn or keep God's approval through our performance. Yes, the law is holy, it's righteous, and it's good, but our ability to fulfill the law by our own power is not the basis of our salvation. In chapter 8, Paul said that we now live and walk by the Spirit. We are sons and daughters of God. We look forward to glory that far surpasses any suffering we experience now. And nothing can separate us from God's love in Christ Jesus our Lord. By the time we get to chapters 9 through 11, Paul shows that we're serving a faithful, sovereign God. And that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. In chapters 12 and 13, he gave specific instructions about what life looks like for justified people. And then finally, last week in chapter 14, Paul challenges Christians to put the good of our fellow believers and the unity of the church ahead of our freedoms, ahead of our desires, and ahead of our disagreements. So again, it's been quite the trip. And you know, after all that, at the very end of Romans, it might be tempting to turn on the cruise control and kind of just coast through these last two chapters. I mean, after all, we've already hit on the important stuff, right? We've read all the memorable verses. And usually, by the time you get to the end of one of Paul's letters, it's just miscellaneous, unorganized pieces of advice 
that you don't really have to pay a ton of attention to. I mean, half of what we'll cover today is just a list of names. What in the world can we get from that? But even though the journey is coming to an end, don't check out of the book of Romans quite yet. Because there are still valuable lessons Paul has to offer us. And today I'd like to focus on two of them in these final chapters of the book. The first lesson is about our mission, collectively as a church and individually as believers. And the second lesson is about the makeup of the body of Christ. So with that, open up to Romans chapter 15, verse 8. Feel free to use the Bibles we have here if you didn't bring one And take one home if you don't own one. But before we go further, let's pray together as a church. Father, again, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for the opportunity to read from your word, to worship, to take communion, to give. Father, these are things you expect of us. These are things that you command of us. But like a loving father, you expect them, you command them. Because you love us. Because they are good for us. And Father, I pray that we would never take for granted just how good and important and valuable these practices and this time together are to our life in Christ and and to our life together as a church. And Father, again, thank you that we can gather here, that we can worship safely, that we can worship freely, that we can have confidence that we are allowed to gather here and allowed to worship. That is not the case everywhere. And so, Father, we pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ who might be worshiping at this very moment in much more dangerous circumstances than we are. And, Father, I pray that you'd be with those who are here this morning. May we honor you with what we say and do. And, Father, we ask that you be with those who aren't here, those who are traveling, those who might be sick, those who have other commitments. I pray that you would watch over them this morning as well and bring them back safely to us. And again, may our worship be honoring to you, and I pray that you would use this morning to build us up and to make us look more like your son Jesus for your glory. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Let's start in Romans 15, verse 8. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, To show God's truthfulness, in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. That comes from 2 Samuel 22 and Psalm 18. And again it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. That comes from Deuteronomy 32. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. That's from Psalm 117. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. The root of Jesse is Jesus, and that comes from Isaiah 11. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing So that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Now, everything Paul says in verses 8 through 13 ought to sound at least a little familiar if you've been here the past couple months in Romans. 
Paul reminds the Roman Christians that God is faithful to the promises he made to the patriarchs in the Old Testament. That's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He reminds them that Gentiles can experience God's mercy by faith in Christ. And he reminds them that this was God's plan from the very beginning. That's the reason he quotes all those Old Testament passages, to prove this is what God always intended. But really, in some shape, form, or fashion, Paul has already covered all of these truths earlier in the book of Romans. He's already talked about this stuff. So I kind of can't help but wonder, why does Paul feel the need to bring these things up yet again? Let's see what he says in verse 14. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, and the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience, by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But, as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. So yet again, this is stuff that we kind of already know. Paul's covered it. You're the apostle to the Gentiles. Yes, we've heard. You fulfilled your ministry in and around Jerusalem, the Mediterranean, mainly through planting churches. Again, that is great. And you don't want to build on someone else's foundation with your preaching. You'd like to take the gospel to people who haven't heard it yet. That is admirable, Paul. We salute you for that. But again, we kind of already know this stuff. So why do you feel the need to bring it up with us again? Well, hold on a minute, because if you think about it, you might be able to tell what Paul is doing. You might start to see where Paul is going. Not to sound crass, but what Paul is doing here is setting up a sales pitch. He's getting ready to ask for something. He is prepping the Romans for his request. So maybe you've heard something like this before. From your kids. Something like, you know, mom and dad, going to the movies with friends is a classic American pastime for teenagers like me. And you know, I have had great success driving to the movies in the past without incident. And there are so many movies out there that I haven't seen. So many theaters I haven't been to. So many memories that haven't been made yet. And by that time, as a parent... You already know what's coming. You know all that's left is the request. 
So, Mom, Dad, can I have 20 bucks? Or possibly, Mom, Dad, can I borrow the car? Well, Paul is doing the same thing. He's setting up the sales pitch. He's reminding the Romans of God's plan for the Gentiles. He's reminding them of his calling as the apostle to the Gentiles. And he's reminding them of his desire, even his ambition. The word ambition is used there. His ambition to preach the gospel where it hasn't been heard. He reminds the Romans of all these things to set up the request that he's about to make of them. And we see that in verse 22. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, and to be helped on my journey there by you, once I have enjoyed your company for a while. So there's the request. Paul asks that the church in Rome assist him on his big missionary journey to Spain. Now, if you remember back to week one when we set up the book of Romans, we said that Paul has not technically visited the church in Rome yet. He knows a pretty good number of people there, but he hasn't been there on an official visit as the Apostle Paul. But really, Paul is just beginning his travel plans. He wants to go to Rome, but his bigger goal is to preach the gospel in Spain. A place many in Paul's world consider to be among the farthest reaches of the earth. And so after he gives this sales pitch, Paul asks the Romans Christians for help. He specifically requests that they give him a place to stay on his way to Spain and that they pray for his upcoming stop in Jerusalem. And it's not crazy to think that Paul likely had some financial assistance in mind as well. In the same verses where he asks for hospitality and for prayer, he applauds Christians for their material generosity. So maybe he was nudging the Romans to write him a check as well. Now, altogether, Paul's proposed trip from Corinth, where he's riding Spain, that would span roughly 3,000 miles. And most of it would happen by boat. Now, we might not think much of 3,000 miles, but... That's about the distance for a trip from Fishers to Salt Lake City, Utah, and back. Again, it's a long trip, but it can be done. But in Paul's day and age, that trip would have taken significantly longer than us hopping in the car. It would have been way less comfortable and way more dangerous. So why is it that Paul is so intent on taking this journey to Spain? Why is he so desperate to go to Spain that he would shamelessly ask people he hardly even knows for a room to sleep in, some financial assistance, and prayer? Well, that brings us to the first lesson that the end of Romans teaches us. The end of Romans teaches us something about missionary zeal. Paul wants to go to Spain so badly. He has this desire, this goal, this ambition, this passion. He has this missionary zeal because he genuinely believes that the good news of the gospel is worth sharing across all creation. Remember what he said in Romans 1, 16 and 17. 
He said, it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. Remember what he said in chapter 9. He was heartbroken thinking of his fellow Jews who hadn't believed. But he was hopeful that there would still be a remnant out there who would. And remember what he said in Romans 10. How can people believe if they haven't heard? And how can they hear without a preacher? So Paul is not ashamed to ask for the Romans' help on his way to Spain because he's not ashamed of the gospel. He believes it. And he wants the entire world to hear it. I'm sure Paul still remembers the day that he first heard this good news. And he can't help but share it. And Paul has this missionary zeal because he took the Great Commission seriously. You know, the Great Commission is something that we Christians tend to know pretty well. We read it quite a bit. We see it in Matthew 28, starting in verse 18. Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Paul clearly took Jesus' great commission, that command about going to all nations. He took it literally. He took it seriously. That command challenged Paul to obedience. And Jesus' promise about having authority over all heaven and earth, his promise to be with his people always, that gave Paul confidence to face that long, uncomfortable, and dangerous journey to Spain. Paul was called to the Great Commission to make disciples of all nations. He was the apostle to the Gentiles. It's what he was made for. It's what he lived for. And so I pray that God would instill in us, both collectively as a church and as individual believers, a similar missionary zeal. You know, we believe the good news, too. We know the Great Commission, too. So may we ask God to develop within us the same desire the same courage, even the same ambition to share the gospel with those who haven't heard. Now, of course, having missionary zeal does not necessarily require that you travel 3,000 miles to Spain or to the ends of the earth. Though if you have that ambition, praise God for it. We need people who can do that too. But missionary zeal can be seen in your desire to share the gospel in your neighborhood, your school your workplace, or even around your dinner table. Missionary zeal can be seen in your hospitality towards, your generosity to, your prayers for missionaries you know, missionaries our church supports. So again, I pray that we would have the same missionary zeal that Paul had. Whether God sends us all around the globe or whether he keeps us in our own backyard. What is your Spain? Who is the person that God might send you to? What is the place that you have an ambition to go to and share the gospel there? Ask God to give you that missionary zeal that we see with Paul in Romans 15. So that's lesson number one about missionary zeal. 
Lesson number two comes up in Romans 16, starting in verse 1. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sincre, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints, and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epinetus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachus. Greet Apellus, who was approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus, who's very full of himself, by the way. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. Also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, not Patronus, Petrobus, Hermas, and the others who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. Now, why would I waste your time reading a list of names? I mean, what can we possibly learn from Romans 16, 1 through 16? Well, maybe more than you expect. Because this list of names teaches us that we do not labor for the Lord alone. It took a village for ministry to happen in the early church. And that is still true today. You need your fellow believers and your fellow believers need you. And we can accomplish far more together than we can apart. If the Apostle Paul, with all of his zeal, With all of his brilliance, with his unique calling from God, with his incredible giftedness, if Paul needed help to do ministry, then so do you, and so do we. We do not labor for the Lord alone. The list of names also teaches us something about the beautiful diversity of the body of Christ. You know, you could learn a lot about a person in the ancient world from their name. In this this list, for example, there are names reserved for people from the upper class and people from the lower class. There are names that were typically given to former slaves who had been freed or names of people that were still slaves. There were Jewish names. There are Gentile names. There are names that are mentioned other places in the New Testament, pretty important people, and names that never appear anywhere else. The point is that the body of Christ is diverse. And that is a good thing. Because a diverse body of Christ is a testimony to the legitimacy of the gospel. Because only something that is truly from God can pull together a ragtag, mixed bag of believers like those we read about in Romans 16. And maybe even those we see in this room. 
Now, is diversity difficult at times? Absolutely. Of course it is. That's what we read about last week in Romans 14. But it's who we are called to be as the body of Christ. It brings glory to God. And it testifies to the legitimacy of our Lord and the legitimacy of the good news that we preach. And then finally, this list of names teaches us something about the importance of women in the life of the church. Regardless of how you interpret other New Testament paid about those passages, there is no denying that Paul's ministry would have suffered greatly if not for the support of godly women. Women funded Paul's ministry. They risked their necks for Paul's ministry. Women sat in prison next to Paul. They played a crucial role in the early church, and the church still needs godly women today. So even though our summer in Rome might be coming to an end, the final chapters of the book still give us a lot to think about as we unpack. And so again, I pray that we would be challenged and inspired by Paul's missionary zeal. And that God would develop within us a missionary zeal of our own. And I even pray that we can learn something from a long list of names. That we remember that ministry is a community effort. That the body of Christ is part of what makes the church beautiful. The gospel credible. Its diversity is glorious. And may we remember that women play a crucial role in the church's mission. Not just back in Paul's day, but in this church as well. So again, never just skim through the end of a New Testament book. Because you might just miss a gold mine of wisdom. Now in the final verses of Romans, Paul gives much of his usual guidance. He warns these believers about the dangers of false teachers. He encourages them to pursue holiness. Reminds them that God's victory in the end is guaranteed. And then he gives a few more words of greeting. But he ends Romans by doing the same thing he did more than once earlier in the book. He did it at the end of chapter 8. He did it at the end of chapter 11 as well. And that is with doxology. That's a churchy sounding word. One that we throw around and maybe don't always explain well. But doxology can be literally translated glory saying. Glory saying. And after all we've read in Romans this summer reading about the depths of our sin, the grace of God, our justification through Christ alone, and the new life that we've been called to, I think that we should end with a glory saying as well. Romans 16, verse 25. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, But has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we've had together. Thank you for this summer reading the book of Romans, spending a decent amount of time reading different chapters and taking apart different verses and talking theology and talking scripture and talking real life where the rubber meets the road. 
Christian living. Father, thank you for this incredible gold mine of wisdom and knowledge and encouragement and conviction and doctrine that is the book of Romans. We talked about way back in June how the book of Romans has been so influential in the life of the church throughout history that that the world would be a different place if not for the book of Romans. And so, Father, I pray that our time in it this morning has done it even just the slightest bit of justice, that our time in it this summer has been good for us and glorifying to you. And so, Father, now that we've read it, I pray that we would come back to it. I pray that we wouldn't forget what we've read because some of the most important defining doctrines of who we are in Christ and what it is that you've done for us are found in this book. And so I pray that we would treasure it, that we would love it, that we would know it, that it would seep into our bones, and that it would shape our hearts and shape our minds and shape our words and shape our deeds. And Father, again, thank you for this good news that we've read throughout the book of Romans, this great exchange that we are justified by Christ. Father, remind us of that day in and day out. We love you. We worship you. We give you all the glory, and we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.